When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big money and transform your home with new appliances now at Menards. We offer the lowest prices and the largest in-stock appliance selection ready to take home today. Check out top appliance brands, including KitchenAid, Maytag, Whirlpool, Amana, and Criterion. Upgrade your home and save big money on new appliances at Menards. Shop our entire selection of appliance options online today at Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Ethiopia is the 10th largest country of the African continent. It has a population of 26 million people, of whom about 1 million live in the capital, Addis Ababa. Addis is about 4,000 flying miles from Dublin. The country lies in what is known as the Horn of Africa, between 4 degrees and 18 degrees north latitude and 33 degrees and 48 degrees east longitude. From north to south, the country measures 900 miles, and in area, it measures nearly 493,000 square miles. In 1973 and into 1974, a disastrous famine hit that country. According to one assessment made by a United Nations official, as many as 100,000 people may have perished. The pictures and the reports shocked the world, and the world responded. No people responded more dramatically or more generously than the listeners to the Here and Now programme. So on foot of that quite extraordinary gesture of national generosity and charity, the decision was taken within RTE earlier this year to send myself and Michael O'Donnell to Ethiopia. I've always anticipated that the world will look to Ethiopia as it is, and now I think the world is looking at it barely a necked how it stands. A land of uh, poverty and ignorance, and a land of uh, where uh, the ruling body is a blood-sucking system. An Ethiopian university student talking in March in Asmara in northern Ethiopia. The leadership doesn't do what it should, what it ought to. Does this mean that, for example, you resent the emperor? I hate him. The emperor he talked about is His Imperial Majesty Haile Selassie I, who was crowned on November the 2nd, 1930. He was then 38 years old. The following year, he gave Ethiopia her first constitution. Laws were made and printed to help the people. By 1935, there was a transmitting and a receiving station in Addis Ababa, the capital of the country. But it was a country with a long history. The first written information about the Ethiopian coasts came, for example, from Greek topographers in the 3rd century B.C. Christianity is the main religion of that land. The church was founded there in 325 A.D., and it belongs to that group known as Monophysite, or Non-Chalcedonian, which separated from other Christian churches in opposition to the decisions of the Council of Chalcedon in 451. The Ethiopian church itself embraces 13,154 churches, 835 monasteries. 
But in 1974, in March, an Irish white father in Adigrat, Father Kevin O'Mahony, was saying, You know, a family, father, mother, five chil- seven children, five of them die, and you're left with a boy of 11 and a girl of 20, and she's got asthma and bronchitis. Well, you'd, you'd have to have a heart of stone if you could sort of treat those things like that in a completely objective and disinterested manner. And I think if the people at home saw some of the problems which the people in the developing countries have to face, they themselves would get an awful shock. You undoubtedly get a shock when you hear that a father, a mother, three children could and had to survive on about eight shillings or 40 new pence a week. On June the 30th, 1936, Haile Selassie spoke before the League of Nations, making a plea for his country. He said at that time, I pray to God the Almighty to spare the nations the terrible anguish which has been inflicted on my people. The anguish he was talking about was the anguish of war. He could have had no idea about the anguish of 1973 and 1974, the anguish of famine. Now, famine in Ethiopia has been happening for a long, long time. But in 1973 and into 1974, what happened was absolutely disastrous. Failure of rains, the cumulative effect of deforestation, no roads, no timber, no seed, just starvation and an estimated 100,000 dying. But if you take some of the facts and sum them up, you can see why. Let us consider wood. 250 million American dollars a year would be needed at this stage to keep the wood in the supply as it now stands. There's no way that they can do it. So last year, the people died in their tens of thousands every month. Here's a boy in the village of Debremar. Women and men who do not have food. Blind men and blind women. So they cannot work. They have no mothers, they have no brothers, and they have no uh, children. So they can either they cannot be immigrated to the place where there is food, nor they cannot uh, exist and eat food. If they are sick, also they cannot go to the clinic because it's too far from the health center or from the places where they can get medical service. Things were desperate. These were the suffering Ethiopians, and do remember that of the country's 26 million people, the vast majority are poor. The emperor, by 1973, the man known as the Lion of Judah, was a very rich and a very autocratic man. When he became emperor, he started up schools and a hospital. He encouraged mission hospitals. He had laws passed to stop slave trading and to free slaves, but things were still backwards. For example, in 1930, it was a boast that Addis Ababa could say there were in that city several hundred cars and that they could travel some miles outside of Addis Ababa. He wanted a better army. He got Swedish and Belgian officers to train them. But Mussolini, in the years ahead, would have his eyes on Ethiopia. However, in 1974, the government was still being firmly guided and ruled by Haile Selassie. But by March 1974, this was not the case any longer, because this year the government resigned after student revolt and accusations of corruption. But so many people had already died. An Irish doctor, Patricia Nolan, 26, from Carraroe. What we have been trying to do is to break the whole thing down and to, first of all, to uh, look after those emergency cases that come, then to try to educate the mothers, because most of the illness is due to the fa- to ignorance or poverty on the pover- part of the mother. Are you ever afraid? Afraid of illness? Afraid of anything. When I first came, I was afraid. I used to be afraid to go alone any place or to... I used to be afraid of uh, getting diseases, but not anymore. 
Now, you, get, you forget about it very quickly. But do you think that uh, that Patricia Nolan that left Ireland and the Patricia Nolan now are in any way changed? No, I mean, do you think that you're, you're thinking about anything has changed, about people, about other countries? I don't think I could ever believe that there could be such a difference in the way of living of two different countries, that we could be so smug and mm. comfortable and so um, close-minded at home. And that's uh, so very near to us that oh, people would, if you threw um, potato peels out a window, that a crowd of children would come and grab them. Starvation on a colossal scale and pain. Blindness, leprosy, trachoma, pneumonia, tuberculosis. Or if you like, skeletons, vultures, mass graves, rotting bodies. That was Ethiopia 73 and that was Ethiopia partly into 74. But people went there to help, Irish people. People like Paddy Whitmarsh, who'd been in Biafra. Quite honest, I mean, the Biafra and here, there was a vast difference. In Biafra, it was principally children. Now, you know, it's terrible to look at children who are hungry and sick and that. But, I mean, they're helpless, all right. But, I mean, I, I think it's nearly worse to look at adults. Who, 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 they feel it more. They, they are sick themselves, they look at their own children who are sick. I think adults suffer more actually than children. But you see, when you went down into Kobo now, did the people there become people to you, or were they just uh, a lot of black faces and black bodies that needed food? I mean, were they really people to you? Not, not them all. I mean, they, they can't all be, but the, the vast majority of them are people to you. And therefore you feel sad when a person dies? Oh, sad. It'll break your heart, so it would. Well, at the end of uh, the heartbreak that you describe, is there ever anything else? Is there ever anger, for example, that it can happen, that it oh, has happened? Oh, yes, of course you're angry. Angry at what? Angry at the world. I mean, angry at 1974. I mean, you have astronauts going off up to the moon and you come out here and it's just, I mean, they have absolutely nothing. I mean, it's, it's just as... The whole world seems to be sort of so badly divided in ways that... And badly organised. Badly organised. And badly yeah. distributed. Yes. When the time comes for you to go back, and I know that you're on leave of absence, as distinct from Paddy Vahina, for example, who is on paid leave, secondment. Yeah. What's it going to do to you, do you think? Supposing you were suddenly confronted with going back tomorrow. Well, I wouldn't go tomorrow. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't want to go tomorrow. But he was due to come back back from a land of hardship and death, a land where death is traditionally shrieked and screamed at. It was unforgettable to experience a funeral in a dust-bowled village named Alatena, locked in a high, dry mountain fastness. When we got there, two hours before the ceremony was due to begin, the loud sorrow could already be heard. The woman monk must have been a really extraordinary person because as the morning wore on, the cries of grief became louder. A 
Eventually, they brought the coffin from the ancient stone church. The sorrowful sounds swelled. The priests in various vestments and carrying multicolored sequined umbrellas sang the final litany, the combination Ethiopian Gregorian sound. now on one side of the compound, the women on the other. A line of mules and horses and men bearing flags and guns walked in a gigantic circle and lone horn blasts hung on the thin air. Single mournful notes that meant, come all of you, our mother who has helped us has died. Finally, with only the children allowed to follow, the body of the woman monk was taken down across the dust bowl and buried in the mountain fastness of Alatena. And one final note, this woman monk had been buried in the place from which her people, after seven years without rain, had wanted to go. They'd lived in the area for 1,400 years, but they could take it no more, and they wanted to go to a new and better place. Other voices, Irish voices, told what it was like to go to Ethiopia to help when the old and the young, the men and the women and the pathetic little children died because they had no food, because they were sick, because they were weak, because they had no resistance to advancing death. Dolores Crudge, a nurse at McKelly. To be quite honest, I wondered why I had come. I, I really couldn't see how I could cope um, myself with a situation like that. But... Um, when I thought about it, uh, or when I rationalised, I felt, well, perhaps I, I wasn't able to... I wouldn't be able to do um, a 100% effective job, but at least I was the only person there. I'd been told before I came that the average daily death rate was something like 15 a day. So whether or not all the really ill people had died, or whether um, because they had uh, perhaps a little medical attention and some perhaps better feeding program, the death rate dropped and we had two perhaps in the first day and then it dropped to about one a week and then none a month and so on. But as I say, I cannot really judge. I don't know whether the people had already, people who were really ill had already died or not. And another nurse, also at McKelly, Patricia Hickey. There is um, an awful lot of uh, miscarriages here in this country. I don't know what the cause of it is, maybe malnutrition is part of the cause of it. Also, their living conditions and the women carrying heavy loads because they carry the water up and down from the river for themselves and they bring them in big flasks. That what, right through their pregnancy? Well, they do in the beginning anyway because they don't realise they're pregnant and so this probably helps to bring on a miscarriage afterwards. If you were suddenly handed a million pounds, you know, I know it's a daft idea, but if you were, and you were allowed to appropriate as much of it as you wished or you needed for this hospital here in McKelly, uh, particularly for the obstetric side of it, what is most needed? What, what would you go after? Oxygen. There's no oxygen in the hospital. Most premature babies die because they just can't live with the 
conditions here. So I think some incubators and some oxygen definitely are needed. These would be the first priorities? Yes. Well, it's now a quarter to 11 on Sunday morning, and we have just left the town of McKelly. We travelled down yesterday from Adigrat, down this main road that runs initially from Asmara all the way down to Addis Ababa. Main road perhaps is too good a description for it, because the part that we're on now, and you've heard already what the sounds of it are like as we bump along this stony road, uh, it's potholed, it's extremely dusty, the dusty swirls round past you any time an occasional truck uh, goes by on either side. But, so this morning now, as I say, we've headed out of that town, up again onto a high plateau, and the last look we had of it was of the Ethiopian flag flying over the Emperor's palace behind us. And we wound up again once more to look back in the town, flinting roofs shining and winking in the sunset, in the sunlight. And up now we are, and heading south into the province of Wallo, and heading towards Kobo. We're driving upwards now. In fact, I've got the wheel in my hand, jumping around every now and again, but driving uphill in second gear. We've just passed a mile post, or a kilometre post, which said 402, which means we're 402 kilometers from Asmara, big red truck passing on the left-hand side, because you've got to remember to drive on the right-hand side. Again, if you come from Ireland, you can very easily become disoriented and find that you're going to try to pass a fellow out on the wrong side of the road until a very helpful companion alongside you says, don't forget, mate, you're going the, the other way. But nevertheless, we're now coming up from that point where we talked about uh, the valley underneath us. Here's another big grey truck pulling over now to let us pass, and a crowd of people on the brow of the hill, brown and uh, these uh, brown cloths about them. Just have them to get out of the way. One of these crazy signposts on our right which says that the road winds. I don't think we've passed a straight piece of road for about the last 50 miles. So there you are. They, uh, they keep on pressing at home that it is winding. But as we come in now, we're out of sunshine. We're out now into a place. It looks like smoke. In fact, we're driving through cloud. And uh, the visibility is suddenly cut down to something like Certainly no more than 100 yards, change up into third now as we begin to go down, and this is a pretty dicey one because we are absolutely driving through the cloud now. It's as if the sun never was, and there's a tiny smell as if rain might be here, but we've gone through that tiny little village and going down a road here now. And one of the things, of course, one has to be careful about, Paddy Whitmarsh told us this a few days ago when we were going over a pretty ferocious road that he was driving on, and that is that when the rain comes on this mud road, the surface is so slippy that the slightest touch of the brakes and you could be in disasterville as they say easing around the left hand bend now god alone knows what's on the right hand side of it so you take this very easy and the poles just standing like uh, skeletons in front of us the telegraph poles and they go way off down into the valley lost in the cloud this was the astonishing country of Haile Selassie who as emperor is head of state commander-in-chief of the armed forces chairman of the crown council he appoints the Prime Minister and approves his Cabinet appointments. He also appoints the Senate, the officers of the armed forces and police, the governors of the provinces, the judges of the courts and all other high officials, including the medical officers of health of the various provinces, like Dr. Fakedi of Tigray, who talked to us of the outside help. They have helped us tremendously, in fact. Uh, I have been here only over just over three months, and during these three or four months, uh, if it were not because if it were not for the 
external aid we obtained, we would have not been able to really tackle the medical problems in this province. The medical, uh, the Catholic Secretariat uh, was the one uh, to start the medical uh, relief work in this province first. Uh, the four, the four, there were four Dutch doctors who, were, who came into the province uh, under the umbrella of the Catholic Secretariat, and they are still with us. And later on, the Catholic Secretariat also helped us in uh, medical supplies and some medical equipment and so on. Uh, the concerned medical group are tremendously helping us now, and uh, their program especially is not only a short-range program of a few months, but they are going to stay with us for one month, well, for six months or uh, one year and six months and so on. And they are uh, really covering the northern part of the province. But could they, the Ethiopians, deal with the medical problems if they arose again? I think so. Uh, at the present time, we have uh, expatriates, medical doctors and uh, nurses uh, assigned in different parts of the drought-affected areas. Uh, previously, we did not have so much help, and uh, only those medical uh, team, medical uh, people who are in the uh, existing health facilities had to tackle uh, the medical problems previously. Uh, but now, uh, since we have the SIM, SIM uh, medical team uh, in Raya and Azabo, uh, the Adelaide medical team in Tambin, uh, and the uh, Dutch medical group uh, covering the Inderta and Klitaulala Auraja, and the concern group uh, are going to cover the Agame Auraja and Aksum Auraja. And now, since we have these medical groups in different, these different places, we think that we can uh, cover really uh, the medical problems of the province better than we, uh, that better than we would. We flagged down an anthropologist from England on the dusty road through the Kobo Valley. Was the future better now for the Ethiopians? One would never be able to claim that. Um, when I arrived here, uh, there really wasn't very much knowledge available, at least in a written form or even concertedly reported form, about what precisely had happened. One knew that there had been uh, some thousands of people who had starved, and some thousands perhaps had starved to death. Uh, this valley is quite famous, I think, as a very lush valley. Uh, as you can see, it takes off uh, perhaps uh, deposits from the hillsides all around it. Mm. Um, and it is quite intensively cultivated now. Um, uh, as yet, I have not seen any remarkable agricultural revolutionary changes coming out of the present aid. Uh, what has happened and what is happening is that some people have been uh, helped from the shelters, that is to say, those who were in the shelters uh, and uh, many now who were not in the shelters have been given uh, grain uh, to, to live with and this is, is supposed to have helped them to rehabilitate themselves, that is to say, to go back and farm. Now the other absolutely necessary thing for farming of course here is oxen and the uh, Ethiopian government through the agricultural ministry has uh, got a scheme for giving out oxen. I think this scheme is going ahead with fits and starts at the moment and one is a little bit worried that possibly uh, a number of people will not get the oxen in time to cultivate through these short rains which are very necessary for many mm. people. Goethe, the Freedom from Hunger organization, made available 500 oxen. They had 2,160 farmers applying for them, and all of those 2,160 were passed as suitable. That meant they had lost everything, they had nothing. 
Well, Goethe sent out an agriculturist from Wexford, a man named Jim Breen, and we wondered what his first reactions were when he saw the land around McKelly. Well, my first uh, reaction was, how, how do so many people live uh, on, on the sort of land it is? I mean, and so many animals. Now, you're a qualified agriculturalist, and you're talking uh, to people at home, a lot of whom will be in the farming community. Is there anything at its worst that you've ever seen at home in Ireland that would even compare with what there is here? No, nothing. Nothing at all. Uh, it's just... Uh, I'd say an Irish farmer would throw up his hands in despair and say, this is desert, I can't do anything with it. The first camp we came to was Kobo a dreadful place, the horror of which has left ineradicable impressions on my mind, a place of human desolation and disease where the dignity was ripped away from humanity, where the eyes that could see and the blind eyes bored into your heart, where the young and the old sometimes fought against misery and onrushing death with quiet desperation and the help of a small heroic group of Irish people sent out by concern. I'm sure that for as long as I live, Kobo will always haunt me, as will Gobier, the camp further on down the road. On the way there, in a Land Rover, I talked with Nurse Paulette Rowe from Dublin. Uh, Paulette, this is a journey that you make every single morning. What are we going to see now when we get there? Um, you're going to see one of the worst shelters in the area, mainly because um, the rains have recently caused complete havoc there. They're very badly built and not at all waterproof. And there is an awful lot of people sleeping outside. Now, how many people actually are in it at the present time? Well, there's approximately 500 in the shelter and nearly 400 on outside feeding. And the ones on outside feeding have absolutely no shelter at all. And then, when you set out every morning, knowing what's ahead of you, do you ever feel in any way a despair at what's facing you? <laughs> many times. Many times. Are children too young to know about despair? Well, in the camp, surrounded by disease and death, clad in rags, they welcomed us, surrounded us, and laughed and mimicked us in the sunshine. The leper woman with no hands and no toes, only yards away, might never have lived, because at this moment, she was not in their minds. Four. Four. Five. Five. Six. Six. Seven. Seven. Eight. Eight. Nine. Nine. Ten. Ten. Is good. Is good. Is good. Very good. Very good. Hip, hip. Now. Irish. Irish. Hen. Do. Three. Quiet. We're interrupting just for one moment because just as playing there with the kids, the body of the boy who died earlier on, in fact died virtually as we arrived here, died from TB. This is the kind of contrast that happens in this country. He's borne away from us now, down below, a group of men carrying it on a stretcher, a long, thin, emaciated boy whose mother, in fact, at this moment, is lying dying in the spot alongside where he died. In fact, she showed no grief because apparently she was too sick even to notice. But his long, thin, delicate, wasted body is taken away from us now, down in the sunshine, and it seems almost obscene, I suppose, in a way, to, <coughs> to talk to the children again, except that to them death is something that has passed them by. It's probably with them every day. Let's see what we can do. We're here in the sunshine again. What's your name? Me? Liam. You? Come on, what are your names? Him? Michael. 
Micah, Micah and Liam. Liam. We, we Irish. Irish. You, you Ethiopian. 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 Is good. good. Hooray. Meanwhile, in the camp's medical shack, not more than 35, 40 yards away, the patients were lining up and coming in to see the nurse. Uh, there were hemorrhages, there were sores, there were wide eyes, there was trachoma, and there was a baby who knew what an injection was all about. But that child's problems were of pain and fear in the here and now. There was still, though, the terrible haunting memory of the stiff body of the young boy who had died on a piece of matting on mud beside his mother. What of him? Um, that child came to us about four days ago from this area of work here where I'm getting some very bad cases in. He was very emaciated and, though not proven, he had obviously pulmonary TB and was in very bad general condition. We started drug therapy and put him on special feeding, special diets, but because of the rains here recently and inadequate shelters, he also obtained the complication of pneumonia. And there's well, very little you can do then. Well, what does his death do to you, I mean? What does it make you feel? Angry, sorrowful, what? Both. Why I'm angry? angry that I haven't got adequate shelters. That they're not waterproof. Had they been waterproof, he may not have died. He got the pneumonia from getting wet from the rain. And had we adequate shelters, it may not have happened. It but do you feel that you could have adequate shelters? Is there a hold-up somewhere? I have requested money for corrugated to improve these shelters and have been refused. Do you think the money is there? The money is there. Well, then, why is there a hold-up? There is a hold-up because they refuse to spend money. They say soon the people will be discharged, the rains will stop. I've had this excuse given to me for the last two months. And that makes you angry? Very angry. On the previous day, we'd arrived among the shanties of Kobo and at six o'clock in the afternoon had gone into the compound where the children in tatters ran to meet us. Well, Kobo also has an orphanage, which use of the word is a terrible misuse of the English language because it's just a large room in which 195 children sleep at night on the floor beneath thin red blankets. Jackie Tyrrell is the nurse who looks after them. She was at the orphanage when I talked to her. Uh, on either side of us, uh, there are sick children. Uh, to our right, the, it's the sick bay. To our left, where the adult workers sleep. But we had to, there were so many children sick after last week's rain that uh, we had to put them in there during the day. But they all crowd in together at night because we have nowhere else to put them. Now, the little children, I saw them last night when I came down with you, asleep on the floor inside on mats and uh, these little red blankets over. Where did the red blankets come from? They came from the Catholic Secretariat in Addis Ababa. And the little, uh, what is this? It's, it's like a little calico... A little shirt. Calico shirt, yes, which they roll up or fold and put underneath their heads. Where do they get those? They're, that came from the Ethiopian government. Are these children warm enough at night? Oh, no, no. Well, what Paulette Rowe does at Gobie camp, Elish O'Neill does at Kobo camp. That is, she looks after the medical side of people's needs. Elish, it's 25 to 11 here, Tuesday morning, and just 10 minutes ago you came back from this shelter, back to uh, the little room at, uh, at Hiley's place where you're staying, and you were quite literally shaken. Why? What had happened? 
Well, I had tried to give out some clothes. We got a donation of some money from some German tourists to buy clothes. And I got somebody to purchase the clothes yesterday in the market. And this morning, I tried to give them out. I was worried about it all morning because I knew there would possibly be a bit of a riot. And my worst... <laughs> You were also telling me this morning that one of the words they have in their mind, for example, on the medical side is morphia. Yes, they are very fond of injections. I think they believe it's the big cure of all ills. It's possibly because they um, probably respond quicker to an injection than they do to tablets. You know, they enter your system more quickly and they have a more uh, faster result. They're not a, a, at all afraid of white people's medicine. They're not, no. I haven't found them afraid of white people's medicine at all here. They're very anxious to, to get as much of it as they can. Now, some and sometimes they even feign complaints to get an injection. I mean, you can't find anything wrong with them, but they're sort of acting up. But you have that everywhere. And are you sometimes put to the pin of your collar so that use, useful drugs won't be misused? Do you have to give them something else? On occasion, I have given them an injection of sterile water which is, has, has no therapeutic value, just to uh, get them off my back. The Ethiopian constitution provides for the rights and duties of the people, equal protection before the law, equality of civil rights, freedom of speech, freedom of press, assembly, religion, and travel within the empire are guaranteed. To these human rights are added economic rights, which include the right to private property, to work as one chooses, and to join associations. But the fact of the matter is that there had been suppression of freedom of the press, just for one, and there had been widespread ignorance and fear. The trade union movement, as one example, is not strong there. The fear prevented new numbers from joining. But how could 100,000 people have died? Did no one report the facts? Abu Bao said he did. He's a local government employee. What I can say is I have been in this area for the last three years. Before three years I was not here. But I noticed this about two years ago, and I could tell you, I reported it, really reported it to the government and to my bosses, that this situation existed. And people have been complaining in different parts of this area, this district, or this Auraja, which I hope you'll be able to understand it by my saying an Auraja is this locality. I reported the situation, and there were others who reported it, but I, I could boldly say that we have at least uh, a freedom for the time being where we can speak what's happened in the past, that we were able to say this in the past when it occurred. We, should, we were not expected to say it. We, 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 were, we were expected to, to keep quiet. Out. If central government had received the information from officials who received it from individual reports yeah. do you think they could have done something to avert the scale of the deaths well to to my understanding i really can't uh, say how much this government uh, could have done by itself but it could have exposed it to the outside world it could have done much more greater by appealing to people like you the irish concern or the World uh, Food for Work program or anything, or any organization of that type. But I don't know why they failed to do it, why, did, why, they, why they didn't like to do it. They knew, I know, I re we reported it in this area, officials, I mean, the local officials in this area reported it. But they didn't like to tell the outside world about the situations existing in this area. 
Well, we still had a journey of some hundreds of miles ahead of us as we headed south towards Addis Ababa. We went south from Kobo and Gobie through Desi, more death, more suffering there. And in the car, on the way into Addis, I asked an American priest, Father Bill Crowley, what he thought of what he'd seen. Well, I never believed things could be as bad as we saw them in that camp at Gobie. I had heard from Father Kevin that things were pretty bad up this way, but his words beggared the reality. Just to see those little children there begging you for bread, begging you for clothes, begging you for anything you could give them. It was a terrible, terrible memory. And yet, of course, the greatest memory of all was the memory of those Irish volunteers. Uh, Well, it's unbelievable that people can do the things that they do. And... uh, well, I'm, I, I'm lost for words, really, in admiration. Will this trip live in your mind? Forever. Forever. At last, then, Addis Ababa, the city, the capital, a place of one million people, the place of opulence and grinding poverty side by side, the place of offices and headquarters, headquarters like that of the United Nations Ethiopian branch of the Food and Agricultural Organization, where I talked with their Mr. Hammersley. It was at the end of February 1973 uh, that uh, I first noted in my monthly report to FAO that the food shortage situation appeared to be getting out of the ordinary and building up to something serious. Now, where does that monthly report go? That goes to the Director General of FAO. And his acting on it would be uh, through what kind of machinery? Well, he would note uh, in advance through this report that shortages may be expected. uh, And from that could put uh, FAO's machinery into operation to study the situation rather more closely. Well, now, having noted that something unusual was happening and having made the report, what does FAO FAO itself then do? I mean, is it an aid program or a recovery program or what? Well, we uh, don't have uh, funds for actual relief projects as such. Uh, What we do is we warn people what may be coming Uh, and we assist in the preparation of estimates of relief requirements. From the time that the Ethiopian government made an appeal for help until uh, that particular help in the form of grain arrived, how much time elapsed? Well, the Ethiopian government first made their appeal for assistance, I think, to the World Food Programme anyway, uh, in the middle of April. I'm not quite sure of my dates, Uh, but um, it was thereabouts. And it took seven months before a ship actually arrived in harbour with, uh, with, with grain. Do you have any idea, I mean, in these days of accelerated transport and sophisticated logistics, why seven months would elapse? In this particular case, the grain uh, had to be obtained, the World Food Programme had to obtain the grain from the United States as, uh, of America as the only place they could get it from. Uh, it had to be obtained uh, then brought to a port in America, uh, then put on a ship, and then shipped to a port in uh, Ethiopia. And we have to remember also that this was at a time when America herself uh, was in difficulties in supplying aid because her own harvest had been poor. Uh, And we did know uh, when the Ethiopian government um, first asked for aid that it was going to take about this long. By March, the whole structure of the emperor's power had begun to collapse. 
There were accusations of corruption in the government, accusations of unwarrantable delays, of dereliction of duty and of negligence. Suddenly, the entire government resigned, the first time such a thing had occurred in Ethiopia's history. The students went into revolt, the armed forces made ominous sounds and took threatening actions. For a while, it looked like civil war. But a form of normality returned, a new prime minister took over, a commission of inquiry into the old cabinet was set up by the emperor, and a new freedom came to Ethiopia. And as it came in, some of the old powers of the emperor went out. On the spot, we found it almost impossible to find out exactly what was happening. Officials were loath to talk when and if you could run them to ground. After many days of trying, we at last got permission to talk to one of the new ministers, Kasa Kebedi, the coordinator for relief. Initially, it's being operated, the operations were being coordinated by the office of the Minister of National Community Development, who served as the chairman of the National Relief Committee. Now, a commission has been established and a chief commissioner has also been appointed. And uh, as you saw today, we're moving offices to uh, bigger premises. So I would say more uh, significance has been given to the job. So how closely do you work, for example, with the voluntary relief organizations from overseas, from Sweden, from Germany, from Ireland, from England, etc.? Very closely, I would say. Mr. Kassa, what, what is the official attitude towards the work being done by the voluntary agencies? Well, uh, as you know, and as uh, you may have heard, I mean, uh, as the work stands at present, most of the contributions and most of the assistance was made by uh, international uh, organizations. And now this assistance has been mobilized by the voluntary organizations. So I would say that the work or, or the service rendered by the voluntary organizations so far is enormous, is vast. Is, is really more than what uh, I would say that the government has done. Is there any resentment or sensitivity about it at all? Well, not at all. As you know, one United Nations report put the possible death figure in the North as between 50 and 100,000 people. Do you think that could happen again ever in the North? And do you think it's likely to happen in the South? Well, uh, the, it's a UNICEF figure, and, and uh, we don't take that for granted because it was a young UNICEF man who went up there and decided that 50 to 100,000 people have died. You I'm not that saying that people have not died. People yeah. have died in the north in plenty. It could be 100,000. It could be much less than that. It could be much more than that. It was just a guess uh, uh, figure given by somebody who's never lived there and who doesn't know much about the situation. But he did say that his sources were from, uh, I mean, I've seen the table where he asked people in local areas uh, what were the registered deaths and then uh, how inaccurate that might have been and then if they gave a factor of two then he would multiply the registered deaths by two. You don't think that's accurate? He did all this in two days and I don't think that is humanly possible. Well, do you think whatever the figure of the deaths in the north was, that is likely to be repeated in the south? Well, this is exactly the difference between the north and the south. You see, the north, actually much of the death uh, was due to uh, our lack of information about the situation there. In the south, it's not... Uh, in this particular moment, for example, we heard what is happening and we know what the problem is. So we are moving. Mm. We are going to do something. And do you think you'll be able to prevent it ever happening again in the northeast provinces? Oh, yes. On the same scale at any rate? Yes. And finally, how much longer do you think that it will be necessary 
apart from being desirable for voluntary agencies to work in the way they have been during 1973 in the beginning in as much as possible in as much as possible and for as long as possible for as long as possible could i ask you one last question do you think that under the new government that things will be better from a relief point of view definitely mr kasa thank you very much okay the new government of ethiopia carries the hopes of the country's 26 million people not the least of these are the journalists who up to this year have been muzzled in what they could print the editor in chief of the ethiopia herald the country's main newspaper published in english and amharic is tesfai habte yaima uh, i think we we are now free where we have grabbed the freedom to report the news that matters it affects people's lives things which were taboo in the past as you might have seen the papers over the past few days i think they have become newspapers and not just blank papers What kind of subjects actually were taboo before a host of subjects in fact it is much easier to you know enumerate the subjects you could write on than to you know say what subjects you weren't allowed to write on because the list is too long well now for instance almost practically nothing you could write on nothing except Reuters news from Kuala Lumpur and Afghanistan and such places did that mean that for example critical political comment at home here was absolutely forbidden it was unthinkable now what about news gathering will you now increase your news gathering staff for example and send more people out into places like wallow and tigray definitely yeah in fact uh, we're thinking of going out to wallow over the weekend because because of the shortage of staff who couldn't make it yes Uh, up to now um, and you know there has been this uh, terrible plight of the people uh, in northern ethiopia because of the drought and famine were you restricted in the amount of news that you could put out on that i myself went with a group of journalists some 5 6 12 12 sometime back a month ago i think mm-hmm. and we brought back stories which never saw the light of day they weren't printed because there was a restriction on them yeah people didn't uh, think that uh, there was a Uh, famine in Wallo, some people. Does it mean, though, that if you were to now go to Wallo, that you would you would print those stories? No, if you have seen yesterday, uh, yesterday's issue of the Herald, indeed, it was uh, full of drought. Indeed, and that is the kind of thing mm. you'll continue doing. Definitely, more of it, not less. Well, now, as we talk here today in your office in Addis Ababa, do you see this as the beginning of a completely new and free era for all the press in Ethiopia? I hope so. Do you think it will last? No, not so much for you know, for us professionally. I mean, we get some uh, pleasure out of writing freely, but this is in the interest of the whole country. It's in the interest of the Ethiopian people. You can't run a government in secrecy. You can't. Really. Why should you be ashamed that there, there is drought? It's a national calamity, for example. We heard the Ethiopian people knew about the drought in Wallo and Tigray through foreign correspondents like you. And do you think that the new freedom will last? One needs to be a prophet. Do you have hopes it will last? I earnestly hope that it will last. Not only that it will last, but more freedom will be given him. Any thinking person must hope that that freedom will last. but one wonders how much longer they'll have to use that freedom to report on drought and famine will those twin disasters decimate another 100,000 
or is the situation under control? Well, only time will give the true answers to those two massive questions, but one man who is at the centre of the aid coming from voluntary bodies all around the world is Father Kevin Doherty, described by Jonathan Dimbleby and indeed by many others as a fantastic man. How much longer did this Kilkenny priest see voluntary aid being necessary? As I see it, the present emergency is not over, but uh, it will gradually develop into a long-term program and... Um, Many parts of Ethiopia are so poor that I can't see this poverty and suffering being alleviated even in a lifetime. And so that uh, I feel that this is a very big role that the church must play in um, developing the country and alleviating that great poverty and the great needs of the people. And uh, I don't think that we can put a time limit to this kind of development. Finally, and fittingly, I think, the last opinions in this program come from an Ethiopian about Ethiopia. He's the Reverend Bera Biene of the Makeni Jesus Church. That's the Ethiopian equivalent of the Lutheran Church. He's also the chairman of the Christian Relief Fund. As I see it, I think the biggest problem is the land tenure. If the government will distribute the land, uh, which is held by the big landlords, I think the poor farmers could be able to farm for themselves rather than be a sharecroppers. If people look on landlords as benevolent landlords, it means that a complete change in their mind, their thinking, their attitudes has got to be brought about. How will that be brought about? Well, I'm sure some of the big landlords, I hope at least, that they will give it away to the people. Originally, the land used to belong to them. They just took it and they used some of the landlords were there as governors, as uh, chiefs, and I think, I hope that they would be open and then they will give it back, they will give back their land. If they don't give back their land, then we might have serious problems. What kind of serious problems? Well, the, la the people might uh, claim it by force, so there will be, say, oh, I don't know, a revolution, something. Would, would it be defended by force, do you think? Uh, I think so, if uh, the government, the, uh, the, at the government level, doesn't help the poor, the, the people in the villages, then uh, uh, there could be a serious uh, fight between the villages and the government army. If the government has recognized the famine earlier, and uh, if they could help the people with, before they sold the, all their belongings, and I think uh, it could have been uh, repaired very easily. The government really didn't really recognize the famine until it was very serious. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.